This is 4L with Ryan O'Neill and Rebecca DeCoster. All right, Rebecca, you're getting your wish because we're going to do our fourth podcast on the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, but I'm most excited about this one because we, we brought in an actual expert today. I know, I'm super excited about it. Do you want to introduce our guest, Ryan? Yes, so, and and and... She is not a stranger to the podcast because we used one of her articles previously as an entire topic on our podcast. But joining yeah, we us, we sort today, of mercilessly ripped off an article. <laughs> we absolutely ripped it off, um, but we gave credit. Uh, joining us is Diana Warshaw. She is a senior attorney at, I hope I'm saying it right, Nesanoff and Miltonberg. That's correct. Yes. Awesome. Hi. Uh, yeah, thank in, you for having me. You're welcome. You are uh, located in New York City, and the art, art, you've written a number of articles for AboveTheLaw.com. The one that we um, stole was Mean Girls or Liable Girls was the Berm book defamatory, which is <laughs> coincidentally one of our most popular episodes in terms of listenership. So, oh, so thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I love your show and, you know, loved a lot of the coverage of this trial in particular. Awesome. Why don't you just give us a little bit of background about yourself, what you, what you practice, um, so our, our listeners can learn a little bit more about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like you said, I um, I work at a firm called Nessanoff and Miltonberg, and my particular practice focuses on um, defamation law and other areas of you know First Amendment rights and media law, as well as sexual misconduct and physical abuse cases. Um, so for that reason, this trial was quite interesting to me. <laughs> Yeah, th- this had to be just absolutely piquing your interest. And and I, I know after we did our episode on the burn book, uh, you know, and, and Rebecca and I had reached out to you, I said, well, we'd love to have you on the podcast sometime. And we were just like thinking somewhere down the line, there's got to be, you know, a defamation case that might make the headlines. And then like the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard defamation trial just like plops into our lap. And it's been like a month and a half of nonstop media coverage. And I was like, it's oh the my gift God. that keeps on giving. Like yeah. it never stops. Yeah. Really, it really is. I mean, I don't usually see many defamation cases, you know, hit the headlines. You know, I follow them because I'm interested in them. But you know, in terms of the general public knowing about defamation cases, doesn't happen often. And you know, just it was perfect timing. No, it it really was. So uh let me just ask you, and, and we're just going to probably bounce all over the place here with this. Um, sure. So verdict, uh, just by way of a recap, if folks didn't listen or have been living under a rock, um, Johnny Depp prevailed on, I think it was two of his claims was awarded $15 million in damages. Amber Heard prevailed on one claim, was awarded $2 million, so it's $13 million in damages. She's already announced she's going to appeal. Except, and we didn't talk about this last time, immediately after and I missed this because I was such an like I was apoplectic about the verdict um the judge immediately reduced the punitive damages to the cap that's in place in Virginia so reduced down from five million to three hundred fifty thousand am I getting that right correct me yeah that's correct Um, Virginia has a statutory cap on punitive damages so the most they could award was three hundred and fifty thousand okay so, and I think her, her attorney has been making the media rounds doing what I've sort of affectionately called as a rehabilitation to her for what I didn't think was the best lawyering performance, but she's been throwing around the numbers 10.3. So that 
is probably where that's coming from then is, is the reduction in the punitives. Yeah, I um, so. I know, we, we, Rebecca and I like, as soon as like, I think it, like the verdict came down at 320 and we were recording at 336. So we, <laughs> we probably should have waited a little bit before we hit the record button, but we were just like, we've got to, like I threw on AirPods and was doing it like, you know, from the backseat of my car. Yeah. Um, so that that's the verdict and, and that's sort of the lay of the land in terms of where things stand. So Diane, let me ask you, were you surprised by the jury's verdict? So I was surprised simply because I just, it's so difficult to win defamation cases of this kind. Um, you know, I, I, I follow them closely and a lot of them are unsuccessful, particularly when it has to do with, you know, some sort of abuse things that happen behind closed doors and you know your burden is having to as a plaintiff is having to prove that something didn't happen you know you're proving um you're proving that you didn't commit the assault or the abuse that is being alleged you know obviously a defamation case where someone says that i embezzled from my company that's a lot easier to win because you know the proof should be in some sort of written record, but this is a lot harder. So I didn't expect this result. However, I don't disagree with the result. So, you know, I think that the jury didn't get it wrong. I, you know, and I know that a lot of people do, um, but I think that the law supports this decision. Um, I, I, I don't know if you, I know that you guys, uh, you know, had some surprise as well. Um, is that sort of how you were thinking about it? Yeah, well, and 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 my surprise, and it's only because I teach this very lightly in in a business law course I teach, and so I'm you know reminded of the Supreme Court case of Sullivan and New York Times, and just how much higher the threshold is for public figures to prevail mm -hmm. because they have resource. You know, the the court's reasoning in that case obviously was that you know look they've got resources and access to a public megaphone that you and I don't. Um, yeah. And so I, I thought, you know, just on that fact alone, that I thought it was going to be really tough for either one of them to to prevail. And, and I guess that's why when when Rebecca and I talked about it, I sort of surmised my, my grand theory was that the lawsuit, as much as getting the win was like an absolute, you know, victory for Johnny, being able to just put witnesses forward and 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 try to discredit the claims that she had made the the objective for him i always felt was to sort of win in the court of public opinion which i i don't know anyone can dispute that i think he did that overwhelmingly in this case oh yeah i absolutely agree i you know i a lot of people i heard a lot of chatter about you know why air your dirty laundry but technically the dirty laundry was already aired just by the fact that you know amber heard had made these statements. And at that point, I mean, people had a certain image of Johnny Depp that they might have not had before. So I completely understand wanting to, you know, change that narrative. I, you know, I have many clients who approach me who say, you know, I know it's an uphill battle, but just getting the complaint filed and having that publicly filed document can tell my side of the story. Um, and obviously this is being done on a much more public stage uh, than merely filing a complaint. So I, I think that it was extremely helpful in that respect um, and just understanding the nuance, you know, that it, to call someone an abuser or to say that you were a victim of abuse um, and implying that it was this particular party, 
doesn't really explain the nuance of the relationship or what ended up happening or you know where those accusations stem from so i think it was absolutely you know a kind of a, a smart strategic move from from that point right i mean even if he lost he still got his side of the story out there in a way that and i think brian and i touched on this in a previous podcast like him writing his own op-ed or him writing a tell-all book or whatever wouldn't have had the same effect i don't think as having witnesses testify for him and then also watching the absolute disaster that her testimony was in my opinion i thought either she was not sanded at all or inappropriately prepped like i i just found her performance on the stand and i don't think that's a euphemism like i her performance on the stand um was abysmal and i don't I don't know that anyone could have predicted that. I don't know that, I'm sure his team had some inkling after deposing her and going through the whole UK thing mm -hmm. about how she would perform and what buttons to push. Um, but really, I don't think any, there would have been any other way to make his case as well as he did other than a court case. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I was surprised. I. I thought she would be a bit more prepared. Um, you know, they I was surprised they weren't prepared as much for the contradictions that would come from yeah. you know certain testimony. I mean, a lot that and I think the contradictions was ultimately what sunk the case for their side. Yep. You know, co contradictions sort of negate credibility and you need credibility in a defamation case. Right. And I think like the contradictions weren't necessarily exactly on point about the alleged or now proven defamatory statements that she made. Mm -hmm. But if you're willing to lie about something stupid like that, I as a juror or I as a fact finder have a real hard time believing you about anything else that comes out of your mouth because you're under oath and you're lying. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I, I think that a lot of, um, you know, a lot that played into this was he, did not need to just stick with the statements themselves. Um, you know, there is a Supreme Court case, Herbert v. Lando, that basically tells you um, that in a case like this, particularly with the you know actual malice standard that he had to meet as a public figure, um, you know, any competent evidence, like anything even circumstantial, um, you know, you can bring that in. You are able to sort of build the case around those statements and not just stick to the statements themselves. You know, you don't have to take them literally uh, necessarily because you're allowed to put forth evidence of, you know, I don't know, threats or, um, you know, ill will, hostility, you know, so he was able to really paint a picture. He had the ability to paint a picture for the jury. Um, and I think that really, really helped him. I thought that I saw some reference that her attorney made a statement after the verdict about how much evidence was kept out by this court. And I don't know that I know any details about that other than seeing that reference. Do you, Diana, have any idea what she's talking about? <laughs> you know, I, I, I saw that statement as well. Um, you know, I don't know what evidence they wanted to keep out, obviously, because it was kept out, I guess. Um, you know, the I wonder why they wouldn't take the opportunity to kind of pounce on 
rebuttal. You know, you can bring forth a lot more evidence on rebuttal, um, which I think that Johnny's legal team did magnificently. I mean, really just, um, you know, they can teach a course on, on how to really utilize your uh, rebuttal evidence and witnesses. And, you know, we saw that with the Kate Moss um, testimony. Uh, you know, I'm sure they wouldn't have been able to bring her in as um, as just a witness to testify, but as soon as her name was mentioned, now you're able to bring her in. And I felt like there could have been opportunities for Amber's uh, legal team to do the same. So I'm not really sure what evidence they feel was left out, but the evidence that was presented, you know, Johnny's team just did a really great job of contradicting a lot of it. And and the statement that her attorney made, because I heard that too, she she was like I said, doing like the rounds on the morning news programs yeah. and talked about that the UK had let in a lot more evidence than the than the US court case did. And I guess, again, she wasn't specific to it. I guess I just interpreted that as, as you know, not being an expert in, in UK rules of evidence that they just have different standards that we do of, of what can be, you know, admitted versus, you know, what we're going to admit, you know, over here in the States. Yeah, you know, so in the UK, and the interesting thing about this is that UK law is a lot more plaintiff um, favorable, favorable to plaintiffs uh, when it comes to defamation cases. And so it's a lot harder in the United States than it is in the United, in the United Kingdom to win a defamation case. Um, I wrote an article about this uh, having to do with um, Meghan and Harry and how they've brought so many lawsuits in the UK, but haven't really done so at least not to that level that I am aware of in the United States because the burden is so much higher. Um, and so in the, in the UK, the burden is on basically the defendant to prove that what they had said was true. Whereas in the United States, the burden is on the plaintiff to prove that the statements that were spoken or communicated are false and thus defamatory. Um, so I can see how as a defendant in the United Kingdom, I mean, this is, I don't know for a fact, but my assumption is that because of that burden, a defendant in the United Kingdom can bring forth a lot more evidence because they, they carry that burden to prove that, oh, what I said was true. And I think it's really important to um, separate the two cases in that, first of all, one was decided only by a judge and here in the United States, we had you know, a jury of their peers um, and then in the United Kingdom, the lawsuit was not against uh, Amber herself, but against the publication. Um, whereas, you know, here it was against Amber. And so I think that those little details made, made a difference, you know, particularly the jury issue. I think that, you know, having seven people who are trying to uh, figure out what exactly happened behind closed doors, you're probably going to maybe get a different conclusion than a judge who's, you know, might have his own singular opinion. See, Rebecca, that's why we brought Diana in. That's the <laughs> insight that you and I just, it like, we totally missed that. <laughs> Sorry. It's only because I wrote that article about Meghan Markle. And, and no, but, but I think it's, I think it's important. And, and, and again, like I said, her, her attorney was, has been really hitting the point that, you know, we prevailed in the United Kingdom, but we didn't prevail here. And there's been a lot of, you know, what I think are excuses being thrown around, you know, the, the social media was, was warped, you know, in Johnny's favor and that that had an influence on the jury. And that's, that's so puzzling to me because 
I understand that the jury in this case wasn't sequestered, but they certainly were ordered not to be like doom scrolling Instagram looking for like Amber Heard, I stepped on a, my dog stepped on a bee memes, which mm -hmm. I was doing, but they weren't allowed to do. And I, so I'm mystified by people saying like, oh, it's because of the social media. That's why, because public opinion. Well, that shouldn't have even been a factor. Right. And I think we have to look at other cases where there are, are allegations of some sort of abuse um, with a high profile, um, you know, well, in those cases, defendant, but, you know, uh, Cosby was convicted, Weinstein was convicted. I mean, we've, we've had big names who the public, you know, the public opinion swayed or swayed a jury either to convict or didn't sway the jury at all, you know, even if it was someone beloved like, you know, Cosby had been prior to these allegations. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't really, I don't think that that is the case either. I just don't think that the jury was necessarily, like you said, scrolling through Instagram and being sold these stories. I think that their focus is going to be on what they heard in court, you know, each day. Besides the fact that they're spending each and every day listening to this testimony, I, I would think they'd go home and maybe not want to continue to dive into these issues. You know, you want to go home and just have some pizza and watch some housewives, you know? Right, <laughs> right. Well, and I, I can't, to me, first of all, I can't even go where there's a relationship where we're recording each other all the time. Like, that's just so mind blowing to me. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I said this before, like if you're at a point where you feel like you have to record every interaction with your partner, like that might be your red flag to get out, but that's yeah. a whole different thing. Uh, to me, listening to those recordings, she had painted herself as I'm 100% the victim and at the very least, her portrayal of her participation in that kind of activity was incorrect. And even if you believe that he, there was some mutual combat involved, I don't know that listening to those recordings, you can think he was the aggressor. Like it, that was, oh, I agree. And I don't I, know how much of that stuff the judge heard in the UK, P possibly none. I don't know. Yeah, you know, actually, I'm not even sure, and I, that's something I'd, I'd want to look into as to whether those recordings were played um, for for the UK case. But I mean, ha having done a lot of cases having to do with um, physical and sexual abuse, and I've represented males and females, you know, the accused and the accuser, both sexes. It's rare to really have that kind of evidence, physical evidence. Um, and so the fact that he came in with these recordings that said, you know, you didn't get punched, you got hit. You know, I'm sorry I hit you, but I didn't punch you. You know, even the one, you know, tell the world, Johnny, tell him, I, Johnny Depp, a man, I'm a victim too. You know, see how many people believe you. I mean, that's that's rare to have. And I think that if I were her and I was aware that those recordings existed, I might, you know, think differently about how I portray the situation. Well, and I think I read something and I was like, yeah, I think, I think that is a huge point where I read something that talked about how he owned all of his own bad behavior. So like, yes, I'm an alcoholic. Yes. I'm a drug addict. Yes. I throw things. Yes. I yelled at her. He owned his shit, mm -hmm. I think is the professional way of saying it. And, <laughs> and she did not, she took zero responsibility for anything going sideways in that relationship. And I 
I think that was to her detriment as well, as well as the constant looking at the jury every single time you answer the tiniest question, which I guess the jurors said they found creepy. And I 100% agreed, like, yeah. it's so bizarre. Yeah, I, I and I think um, the attorney, Camila Vasquez, she at one point even said, like, don't look at the jury, I'm, you know, look at me, I'm asking you a question. That's something that I I would you know instruct my client not to do you know don't don't look like you're playing for the jury um and also yeah owning your like you said owning your shit which i think is the legal term yes um <laughs> i think it would have gone a long way if she said you know i made a lot of mistakes and you know i wasn't perfect and however like this is you know the situation i was put in and you know i felt x y and z and i, I you know she never really owned up to it um the way that he did and that, I guess, has been one of the things that has sort of irked me about, you know, and look, I understand it, right? Her attorney and 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 the, the associates that were on that case, this isn't going to be their last case. Mm -hmm. They're trying to, they're trying to 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 do some damage, you know, damage control in, in in the PR world. But you know, Rebecca and I watching this and and seeing the highlights on social media, you know she's testifying multiple days in a row and doing that jury like look over thing you know the and it was and I, and I said to Rebecca I said it's like I cannot believe that somebody on her legal team number one didn't catch that when they were doing witness prep and that number two at least after the first day she started doing it went up to her and said that's just weird you need to stop doing that right now um and so I, I don't I guess I'm Again, I, I understand why she wants to sort of, you know, bury that and, and talk about some of the other things that she thinks, you know, swayed the jury. But I, I just felt like their preparation on the case, particularly with with preparing their witness, was was really bad. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I'm, you know, I kind of wish I was a fly on the wall because I, I don't know why, like you said, why they didn't instruct her to act differently. There should have been a lot of witness prep. I probably would have um I, I probably would have said to like hold off on maybe you know the dramatics you know a lot of it did come off i think or you know from what i've read of others they agree that it came off a bit phony um like you know it was very performative um and i think that she would have benefited from maybe dialing it back i mean you know obviously johnny's demeanor was i don't know if i would have i don't know if i would have prepped him in that way you know there's a lot more like joking around and you know um but you know it worked for him but um I probably would have just told her to be a little more matter of fact and less performative and, and look I think they both were exactly as you're saying they both went into that trial performing as witnesses not that wit not all witnesses don't I mean I think there's there's always some level of theatrics and in what we do but they they both went in there to give a specific performance hers was just so much worse than his was he came across as very charming and endearing i mean how many times when he would answer questions and and again i think it just goes to what i think is just bad lawyering on on her team's part you know they they're trying to get him in these gotcha moments that instead of being actual gotcha moments like just make them look really bad like when you're so you poured a mega pint of wine and you're like what is on like I'm not a wino, but what is a mega pint of wine? Like, what are we talking about here? Yeah. You know, and he and he laughs about it, and you can hear the gallery like laughing with him. And there was never that sort of connection between the people who were in that courtroom and and Amber. 
right. the way that they had with Johnny. And I think that that transcended to the larger audience, which again, I think for him was, was the point, right? It was to reconnect with people and give, you know, studio execs and directors like some coverage to go, okay, all the things that she said about him may not be true. And now, you know, maybe we do want to put him in Pirates of the Caribbean 19 or whatever the right. case may be. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I think it also kind of um, speaks to, I guess, authenticity. I think that sometimes having an imperfect witness is actually beneficial because Johnny didn't look like he was playing a part. He didn't seem like it because he was sort of imperfect because I'm sitting there saying, oh, I don't know, maybe his attorney should like tell him to like dial it back on like laughing things off or, for, you know, making these quips. But, you know, by being sort of imperfect and not it not seeming like he was perfectly prepped for this, you know, for this position, for this uh, testimony, it made him seem more authentic. Whereas I think that it backfired for Amber thinking this is how a person in my position should act. Uh, you know, this is how a person in my position would connect to a jury. I think that that came off as inauthentic. Yep. I see. And to me, that's the distinction is I think he was he performing for the jury. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. He was playing himself. And I think she was playing to the jury, but she was playing a character that was what would my character do in this situation? if my character were a victim. And that's, I think to me, that was the distinction between being able to find him authentic and, and that he wasn't um, being disingenuous and she came off as very disingenuous, like she that she was being completely inauthentic, which makes the inconsistencies in her testimony a lot more troubling from my point of view. Absolutely, I agree. I yeah. wondered, um, Diana, what your thought was on how they divided up the witnesses, because I find that fascinating from a strategic standpoint. And I am, to my core, believe that they had Camille Vasquez do that cross because they knew that she got under her skin more than any other lawyer on that team. Oh, absolutely. I think that they, you know, and Camille Vasquez has really come out as like the star of this trial, um, and deservedly so. She did an incredible job. Um, I think, and, and I see this a lot in my cases, having sort of a young woman to young woman sort of exchange comes off better than, you know, necessarily having, you know, a male, whether, especially not an older male, but, you know, even a younger male, you don't, I don't think that a jury would respond well. I don't think the public would respond well to, you know, the kind of pushback and the tit for tat um, between, you know, a woman in Amber's position and then a male attorney. I think that that was a very smart strategic move. Yeah, I agree. And I think particularly with the allegations that were in mm -hmm. place, like having a male attorney, regardless of age, go after her on cross would have been disastrous. Yeah. And, you know, I actually see this a lot in a, in a lot of my cases that if I'm representing the male, I see that Often, you know, the the other side, if it's, if it's a female on the other side, might have a male attorney. Whereas, you know, a lot of times, you know, even in my firm, I have, you know, the if it's a female client, usually the male attorney would. I mean, no, I I actually handle a lot of the male uh, the female uh, clients as well. But 
you know, it, I think particularly when you are representing a male, I think it does some somehow help to the decision maker, whether that be a judge or a jury, to see that this male is represented by a female, and that's a female who's really um, going hard at the other side. Um, and that, you know, I think that's just because that's how you know public perception sort of you know runs. I, I think that. Uh, for better or worse, I mean, it's not correct or incorrect. I think you can have really um, good counsel regardless of the sex of your attorney. But I think that there is a perception of, you know, if you're a male and you're kind of cross-examining a female witness, it doesn't play well. Yeah, and I think that's particularly true for a jury. I guess I hope that it's not as true in a bench trial. Yeah, um, but less I so. You never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's hard. A lot of times, you know, I think when you are preparing some sort of legal case like this, you are also thinking about like how does this read, how does this look. I mean, you're trying to really fit into the law, and I mean, first and foremost, we're just trying to meet certain elements of claims and provide sufficient proof, and you know, meet the standard of proof. But I think in the back of everyone's mind and probably not even in the back, but, you know, they're all thinking, how does this come off? And how will this question read? And if I use this tone, how will a jury, you know, view me um, when I'm questioning this particular witness? Right. Words matter. Yes. Words matter. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Diana, I, listen, it, I really did not think we were going to get you in here like <laughs> this quickly yeah. to talk about defamation. Like, it, like absolutely worked out absolutely brilliantly and thank, thank you so you. much for lending your expertise because you have explained the nuances of this case far better than than certainly i have um oh, to our you. listeners so i know you got some some stuff coming up and coming out here can you just tell us a little bit about that and where we can find your next brilliant article yeah absolutely thank you um you know first of all this was a great experience because i have been just like dying to speak with people about this. And, you know, my husband doesn't want to hear about it anymore because I have too many opinions on it. Um, but, and my kids are too little to understand what I'm talking about. But uh, I have um, a, a few articles, uh, op-eds coming out, um, I think early next week, I am publishing um, an op-ed in nj.com, which is, you know, a a news website um, for New Jersey. And that article will actually be sort of about how we view um, male accusers and the male accused and whether or not it truly is an affront to the Me Too movement. So it really thematically sort of um, speaks to that issue. And then in Above the Law, I'll be publishing a column that really kind of pulls apart the evidence that was presented in this uh, in this case, not all of it, but a lot of it, and try to explain how and why the jury reached this decision, um, particularly the contradictions to testimony and why they ruled the way they did. Very good. I'm excited to read both. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, and we will, uh, we will put a link, if you're listening, we will put a link in our uh, both social media pages as well as on the uh, podcast post so that you guys can check that out as well. So I appreciate that, you guys. Thank you. 
All Thanks right. for coming. When the appeal comes through, oh, yeah. Yeah. we'll have you back. <laughs> Hop back on. To, yeah, absolutely. Or if there's any oh. other hot celebrity defamation cases, we maybe more are coming. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see if this opens the floodgates to more work. So as Johnny <laughs> Depp would have said, it's happy hour somewhere. And no, wait it's happy hour for us right now. So. Thanks, Diana. Thank you.